public affairs. He received an A.B. in physics from Princeton, an M.Lit. in politics from Oxford University, where he studied as a Rhodes Scholar, and a J.D. from the University of Chicago Law School. His research focuses on constitutional theory, religious liberty, legal philosophy, and adjudicative institutions. His book, Constitutional Self-Government, defends judicial review and constitutionalism as, a practi- as practical devices for implementing a subtle non-majoritarian form of democracy. Chris Clerk for the Honorable Justice John Paul Stevens, United States Supreme Court, and for the Honorable Judge Patrick E. Higginbotham, United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. Fred Hitz is Lecturer of Public and International Affairs and Director of the Project on International Intelligence. He received an A.B. from Princeton University and a J.D. from Harvard Law School. Fred is former Inspector General of the CIA, appointed by the President in 1990. His experience includes serving as Congressional Relations Officer, as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Legislative Affairs, as a senior staff member of the Energy Policy and Planning Staff in the Executive Office of the President, and Director of Congressional Affairs at the Department of Energy. He is the recipient of the Secretary of Defense Medal for Outstanding Public Service and the Department of Defense's Distinguished Civilian Service Medal. Anne-Marie Slaughter is the J. Sinclair Armstrong Professor of International, Foreign, and Comparative Law at Harvard University and Professor at Harvard's John F. Kennedy School of Government until June 30th of this year. (laughs) She will join the Princeton University faculty on July 1 um, uh, and uh, in the Woodrow Wilson School and the Department of Politics and will become Dean of the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs on September 1. Her teaching and research have focused on global governance, the politics of international tribunals, and interdisciplinary analyses of international legal issues. She graduated from Princeton, where she majored in the Woodrow Wilson School and received a certificate in European Cultural Studies. She received the Daniel M. Sachs Memorial Scholarship, one of Princeton's top honors, which provides for two years of study at Oxford University. She received her MPhil and DPhil degrees in international relations from Oxford and her law degree from Harvard Law School. Let me turn it now over to Chris. Or what's, what, what order do you want to call it? I, I, I think we're, we're going to have Anne Marie. Okay, <laughs> that's fair enough. <laughs> you don't need to introduce me again. <laughs> um, so, good morning again. My task this morning is to set the stage uh, for the debate about terrorism and the law, to talk about how we think about uh, how we fight terrorism from an international and also a domestic legal perspective, but in the broader context of a global military problem as well as obviously a criminal justice problem. So what I want to do is to set out the two paradigms of how to think about uh, terrorism and how to respond to it, the military paradigm and the criminal justice paradigm, how we should think about uh, policy in both those areas, the trade-offs between them, when we use one and when we use the other, then turn to specifically the criminal justice uh, approach, since as a lawyer that, that's where I'm, I'm most comfortable, and talk about a global criminal justice system, uh, which is in fact uh, being created, we just don't think of it uh, that way, and I'll conclude uh, with by linking the re- the criminal justice response to terrorism to similar responses to other global crimes. We've all been focused on terrorism, but it's actually one of an entire class of global crimes. 
So these two paradigms, you wouldn't be an academic if you didn't talk about paradigms, uh, but the, uh, the conventional wisdom, uh, not simply in the academic literature, but really in the media right after September 11th, was that we had the clashing of these two traditional paradigms, that we thought when we think of war, we think state to state. When we think of criminal justice, we think state versus individual. But here we had a situation in which individuals had attacked a state and had attacked a state in a way which, if they had succeeded, would have been the equivalent of a major preemptive military strike. Think about that for a minute. If they had not only brought down the Twin Towers, but they had brought down the part of the Pentagon that they wanted to bring down, which is the part uh, with, the, with the Secretary of Defense, and struck the White House, they would have made, struck a major blow at our economy, our defense establishment, and our political leadership. That's war. By most people's definition, that looks like war. And yet, they are individuals, they are individuals perpetrating something we think of as a crime. So, we're between these two worlds. Well, there are a lot of different ways uh, to think about that. There are various uh, uh, proposals, again, in the academic literature and in the policy literature for how we should develop a new security paradigm uh, completely. I think, at least for the moment, the answer is simpler. We need to respond militarily and uh, with law enforcement tools, traditional criminal justice tools. The question is, when do we use one and when do we use the other? And, of course, we have been responding with both. We fought a war in Afghanistan. We, sent, we certainly fought a military campaign uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, and simultaneously, we have been pursuing these individuals through global criminal justice. But going forward, how do we think about one versus the other? I'll propose two possible criteria. Uh, I won't support them in any great uh, depth. We can talk about that in the, in the question period. But one way of distinguishing them is to say where we can identify a clear concentration of terrorist individuals, infrastructure, support, as we could in Afghanistan, that's a reason, that's a, a, a reasonable justification for using military force, where we, we know we can target a specific physical infrastructure. Second, where we think there is credible evidence, and of course those words, uh, I'm a lawyer, uh, cover a great deal uh, of potential interpretations, where we have credi credible evidence of apocalyptic uh, uh, potential. In other words, the potential for apocalyptic destruction, for, for the use of weapons of mass destruction on a mass scale. If you... Again, credible evidence is the key, but if you do have credible evidence, that to me uh, is an argument for being using military force, provided that you think, in fact, you have the tools uh, to do something about it. That's a situation in which the criminal justice system uh, is too little too late in a uh, horrifically dangerous way. Other than those two situations, I would argue we should be look, treating this much more as global crime than as war. Uh, that we should be thinking about it in terms of specific individuals who are committing crimes and using all the tools at our, at our uh, disposal to combat them. So let me come to my second point. How do we do that globally? We do that by constructing a global criminal justice system that has three components. One, military tribunals in very limited circumstances. Two, and primarily national courts. 
and national uh, criminal justice apparatus, not just courts. And third, some international tribunal, and I'll talk about specifically uh, what I mean. Let me start uh, with the military tribunal uh, case. I think there is a place for military tribunals. I don't think it's the uh, place that the administration uh, has carved out, although I actually do not think there's going to be a trial before a military tribunal for lots of reasons. Uh, one of those reasons is the tremendous public outcry, uh, and it was a proud moment uh, for our democracy to watch that happen. Uh, it was not expected. There were people across the country, lawyers, policymakers, journalists who said, we're not going to do this, and it forced people to rethink. But there are other reasons, chiefly lack of evidence, that makes me think that's not going to happen. Were we, however, in the field, in the theater of military operations, and we apprehended individuals and we needed to try them quickly, that is a place for a military tribunal. That's battlefield justice. You want something better than simply summary execution. There is a role and has been historically for a military tribunal. But the backbone of this criminal justice system is national courts. Courts here, courts in Europe, courts in Pakistan, courts in Egypt, courts in Indonesia. Judges doing the same thing in different countries under different national legal systems, but understanding that they are, in fact, linked in a global effort to fight global crime. There, these judges, in fact, communicate with each other increasingly on, in all sorts of different areas. This is an area of my own research. It only takes a shift in consciousness for them to think of themselves as part of a network of judges fighting terrorism in the same way that financial regulators around the world are fighting terrorism, police investigators, and intelligence operatives, as Fred Hitz is going to talk about. Networked national institutions are the backbone of global institutions. Finally, we need some international alternative, whether it's the International Criminal Court that gets jurisdictions specifically from the UN Security Council, which will, of course, include the United States, has to include the United States, to try specific defendants uh, who are related to September 11th or going forward, whether it is uh, an ad hoc tribunal that is established, we can debate about that. But we need some global institution to, to try the cases that no national judge wants to take. And there will be such cases. There will be cases in which a Pakistani court says, oh, we're not doing this. A U.S. court says, we don't want to do this. We, we're going to need an international alternative as we have now in The Hague uh, for Rwanda uh, and the former Yugoslavia practical reasons, but also symbolic reasons. It's President Bush who said, this is not just America's fight, this is the world's fight. It was an attack on the world's peoples, it was an attack on the world's values. What better way to symbolize that and to instantiate it than a global court that can make global jurisprudence on this specific question? So that's the, an image of what a global criminal justice system uh, could look like. It requires much more a change in consciousness than a change in operations. Most of the pieces are there. Not the international court yet, but even there, once the international criminal court's up and running, it won't be hard. Finally, and briefly, we think about this as terrorism, as a war on terrorism, as a new security threat. Terrorism is one of a class of global crimes. They are crimes committed by networks of criminals, global networks of criminals, and they include arms, money, drugs, people, 
women and children, but also migrants of all kinds who are being smuggled by global criminals operating in networks and intellectual pirates. Uh, the, the, from a, that's not something that's often added, but if we were talking to a corporate audience, it would be high on the list uh, of global uh, crime. All those individuals operate in the same ways that terrorists do. Uh, they think of their territory as global. They have a very similar network structure. What we do in fighting terrorism will be critical to fighting those crimes as well. Those are not things we can attack uh, through military force, so we need to be putting our resources there, uh, not only for our immediate security, but for our long-term domestic uh, well-being. Thanks. Good morning. It's a real pleasure to have a chance to talk with you this uh, uh, morning. One of the uh, joys of uh Coming back to Princeton uh, for me has been a chance to uh, talk to alumni at uh, functions uh, like this one about the sorts of things that uh, uh, we do here at the uh, Wilson School. And I'm, I'm always amazed at uh, how willing alumni are to turn out for these kinds of uh, activities on 10:30 on a Sunday morning following reunion uh, uh, parties. Uh, uh, something happens, I guess, after people graduate. I don't think I can get any of my students to show up at 10:30 on a on a Sunday morning. I have a little bit of trouble anytime we get sort of in the 9:30 range or. Something. Something uh, in the middle, say, about Wednesday or something in the uh, in the week. But it's uh, it's a uh, it's a pleasure to uh, be here to talk about these things, which are obviously crucially important to, to what the school is uh, doing. And, and one of the many reasons I'm I'm excited about the arrival of our uh, new dean, Anne Marie Slaughter, is her ability to uh, provide us with intellectual leadership in the ongoing uh, conversations about uh, these topics. Um, I, I'm going to uh, focus my remarks on. Um, one part of the uh, general map that uh, Anne-Marie laid out in her remarks, uh, I'm going to talk about uh, the role of national courts in the United States with regard to these uh, issues uh, and focus in particularly on uh, one assumption that's been crucial to the White House's uh, policy with regard to combating uh, terrorism and which I think is uh, importantly uh, mistaken and has been uh, the subject of this uh, outcry that uh, Anne-Marie uh, mentioned. There's a widespread assumption that the White House has often repeated and that many people uh, share that uh, accused terrorists should receive fewer protections in the criminal process than do other criminal uh, defendants. One crisp statement of this from Alberto Gonzalez, White House counsel, on November uh, 30th, printed in the New York Times, uh, read this way, said, and I quote, enemy war criminals are not entitled to the same procedural protections as people who violate our domestic laws. Enemy war criminals are not entitled to the same procedural protections as people who violate our domestic laws. That statement was offered as a defense for the uh, administration's military order creating military tribunals subject to whatever rules the Secretary of Defense would eventually uh, write. I, I think uh, Mr. Gonzalez's statement should lead us immediately in, uh, to, to ask the following uh, question. Is it, why not? Why aren't enemy war criminals entitled to the same procedural protections as other criminal uh, defendants. After all, to begin with, when we're talking about procedural protections, we're talking first and foremost not about war criminals, but accused 
war criminals. That is, the point of procedural protections are to design a trial system to determine whether or not somebody who is accused of being a war criminal is in fact a war criminal. So why aren't accused war criminals entitled to the same procedural protections as people who violate our domestic laws? Not simply, obviously, because they've been accused of something horrific or bad, but as we accuse lots of people of things that are horrific or bad, and even those accused of the worst are generally entitled to lots of procedural protections in our system. So mobsters, accused mobsters, accused drug kingpins, accused child molesters, even when we're fairly sure that we've got the right uh, guy, we think it's essential that we afford a presumption of evidence and procedural protections designed to make sure that we haven't uh, level these incredibly serious charges against somebody who's in fact innocent. The gravity of the crime, far from being a reason why we should immediately lift these protections, might be thought to be a reason why it's especially important to keep them in place. That is, when somebody is charged with something especially horrible and especially serious, it becomes especially easy to think, look, we've just got to lock that person up. There we've got him. Let's put the procedural protections aside. A rush to judgment becomes more inviting when the crime is serious and the person is thought to be especially heinous than when the reverse is true. So why are accused terrorists different. Two kinds of answers have been given to this. One of them is legalistic in character, and I want to talk first about that one, in part because there's a, a, an interesting story that goes with it. The legalistic one says, look, there's a Supreme Court precedent, ex parte Quirin, from the 1940s, and it just says terrorists are different from other accused criminals. So here's the story of ex parte Quirin. Ex parte Quirin suddenly entered the consciousness of most constitutional lawyers on November 14th, the day after the Bush administration uh, issued its military uh, order. I freely admit the story I'm about to tell you is not one I knew before that day. I was scrambling to the case books and then the history books to, to learn this case. It's not one we taught all of our students in the uh, first year uh, uh, law school curriculum at uh, law schools or in cases or courses here like uh, the uh, politics uh, department course on constitutional interpretation. Ex parte Quirin arose uh, in 1942 after some uh, German spies landed on the shore of Long Island off of uh, German U-boats. They came ashore, they waded ashore, they had some markings on them that identified them then as uh, German army officers. The first thing they did on landing on Long Island was to take those off and bury them in the sand. And then they proceeded to New York to live as ordinary civilians and uh, presumably to pursue missions of espionage and sabotage within the United States. But one of their number uh, had planned all along to defect to the United States to, to, to uh, uh, turn himself in and identify his co-conspirators to, uh, to the U.S. government. Uh, and he did that very rapidly after arriving in New York. He, he contacted the FBI office in New York. And now this story is going to start sounding eerily uh, familiar, although exaggerated. He contacts the FBI office in New York. In his report, he says, I'm a German saboteur. I'm here in New York City. I'd like to turn myself in. And then the, the FBI said, that's a crank call. <laughs> And they dismissed it. <laughs> Fortunately, he wasn't deterred. So he went down to Washington, to FBI headquarters, and presented himself in person. And after extensive questioning, the FBI discovered that he was, in fact, a Nazi saboteur. And with his assistance, they identified the others, managed to arrest them. And now, now, military tribunals come into the, to the picture. J. Edgar Hoover director of the FBI, wanted to claim this case, and I'll tell you in a moment how extraordinarily successful he is with this, he wants to claim this case as a great success 
for the FBI. So he's worried for that reason. He's got two reasons for being worried about public trials. One is it's not, uh, he's a little worried that he can't try any of these people on anything that's really a capital offense and he wants them executed. The second thing is he's worried that there's a public trial. The whole story of this, including the, the fact the guy had to turn himself in twice, is going to come out. And he's not keen on that. So he says, secret military tribunals. And Franklin Roosevelt says, uh, okay, in response uh, uh, to that. And the FBI is able to claim this as an intelligence coup. And I, I said a moment ago, I'm going to tell you how, how astonishingly successful he's with this. I, you know, you're all here at 10.30 in the morning. You may have been here for the breakfast at 9. I don't know if you've had a time to read the New York Times this morning. There's an uh, uh, extraordinary uh, story starting on page 1 and then running over to a double truck um, uh, display in the middle of Section A. Wary of risks, slow to adapt, FBI stumbles in a terror wars by Don Vanatta Jr. and David Johnston. But if you go to this, there's a little breakout feature at the bottom of the double truck section with past FBI directors. It says how long they were there, great accomplishments, sort of shortcomings. So under, under J. Edgar Hoover now, 1924 to 1972, director of the FBI, unbelievable. But here, here's the list of his accomplishments. Invented the modern FBI, that's a good one. Ra raised professional standards, led a roundup of gangsters in the 1930s, and German saboteurs in the 1940s. So here, here's the New York Times today, led a roundup of German saboteurs in the 1940s. So the, the, uh, the Supreme Court eventually approves these military commissions, and there are a lot of reasons to be skeptical about this case. I've, I've talked too much about it. I'll, I'll, I'll not give all the reasons to be skeptical about it. But the crucial thing is they do say, look, these folks were illegal combatants. They were violating the laws of war. They were operating without military markings. They can be tried in front of military uh, uh, commissions. And so the, the administration has said, enemy war criminals don't deserve the protections of ordinary uh, uh, criminals. See uh, um, ex parte uh, queering. For these purposes, here's the most crucial fact about ex parte query. And there are other reasons to be skeptical about this case. I've already hinted at some of them, but there are other reasons. But here's the most crucial fact about ex parte query. In Quirin, the defendants admitted that they were enemy soldiers. There was no denial on their part that they were German soldiers. That was stipulated to and never denied uh, in the case. Now, we try our own soldiers in front of military courts. We try them in front of military courts for large crimes and for uh, small crimes. Being, being back late from uh, leave, they can be tried under some circumstances in front of a military uh, court. There's reason to think that it's sensible or at least constitutional, consistent with international law, to treat foreign soldiers in the same way we treat our own. That is, not because they've been accused of especially heinous things, but because they are soldiers and we use military courts rather than ordinary courts for trials of people who are clearly, undeniably, soldiers. But this means two things about queer. And the first is it doesn't stand for the principle that if you're charged with something especially horrible, we're going to ratchet down the procedural protections that we use to make sure we're not trying the wrong person. And secondly, it doesn't have any application to the people who are most likely to be picked up in the United States and charged with terrorism. That is, they're not going to say, yeah, I'm a soldier, but I'm not a terrorist. They're going to say, I'm not a terrorist or a soldier. I'm not an enemy combatant at all. And at that point, there may be reasons for using military tribunals, but they aren't supported at all by Quirin. 
What's the second argument? The second argument offered by the Bush administration is, uh, and by, uh, by some people who are mildly critical of its military tribunals uh, proposals is this. They say, look, terrorism is just too dangerous to treat it the way we treat other uh, uh, crimes. So Emory's soon-to-be former colleague, Professor Lawrence Tribe of the Harvard uh, Law School, not, not norm, uh, normally known as someone who's uh, adverse to rights of the criminally accused, famous civil libertarian, famous constitutional law professor, he said this. He said, look, ordinary, and he's a critic for the most part of the military tribunal's proposal, but nevertheless he said, look, ordinary criminal justice is predicated upon the idea, and you've all heard this slogan, it's predicated upon the idea that it's better to let a hundred guilty people go free, a hundred guilty people go free, rather than convict one innocent person. Professor Tribe has said, that's our normal attitude. We cannot abide that when we're dealing with terrorism, because look, if we let those 100 go free and they all commit some horrible terrorist act and they're all killing a thousand people, it's a hundred thousand dead. So we've got to... Adjust the ratio, and that means ratcheting down the criminal protections. Now, I, I think this is a misleading argument. I think it's misleading in two ways. The 100 to 1 ratio does say something important about our criminal justice system and, and something we all have to believe about our criminal justice system. That is, we do take a different attitude to positive and uh, negative uh, errors. We do worry very much and a bit more about uh, convicting uh, uh, innocent people than about letting guilty ones go free. And I, I, I think even in the field of terrorism, we all share that. If we flip around what Professor Tribe is uh, saying and, and, and put it a different way and say something like, hey, it's fine to uh, convict a few innocent people and maybe execute them uh, so long as we don't let any terrorists go free. I think it's a tremendously unattractive um, uh, um, sentiment. but I don't think the 100 to 1 ratio is really important to this, uh, to this sentiment that um, uh, we have. The, I don't think we believe that, for example, about mobsters or about uh, drug uh, kingpins or about child molesters. This ratio is, is a, a kind of hyperbole used to express a, uh, another sentiment about our different attitude toward these two errors. But probably the more important respect in which the ratio is misleading is uh, this one. Our differential aversion to these two kinds of risks is not our only reason for, uh, uh, or even the most important reason, for the, the procedural protections that we put in place in the uh, criminal justice uh, process. Instead, those protections rest on a justifiable perception that once you put somebody in the defendant's dock and you put a U.S. attorney or a prosecutor or some other kind on the other side and, and the attorney gets up and says, I represent the United States and, and we've decided that this person is likely guilty of the following horrible acts, Even if you've got a presumption of innocence technically there, at that point the jury is looking at that person and thinking, boy, that's our government. They've put that person in the in the dock there and charged him with these horrible acts. There must be very good reason to believe that person is uh, guilty. And we put these procedural protections in place to keep us from rushing to judgment under those circumstances. And even though we talk about wanting to let a hundred guilty people go free rather than convicting an innocent person, we have plenty of of evidence that, in fact, we free Frequently, well, I would just say frequently, but let's say, uh, uh, I'll, I'll leave out the adverb and let you decide which one to put in. We, we have all sorts of evidence now that even on death row, where people have not only been jailed but sentenced to death, we have significant numbers of uh, persons who have been wrongly uh, convicted. It's too easy for us, once we get caught up in believing that somebody has committed a horrible act, to think we've got the right person uh, if we don't put in place procedural protections that check us for making those um, 
uh, mistakes. So, bottom line on this, terrorism is dangerous, terrorism is awful. It obviously requires, both as a military matter, as uh, Anne-Marie said, and as a matter of the administration of our criminal justice system, adjustments to what it is that we are uh, doing. Uh, but what we ought not to abandon uh, is the uh, high standard that we hold ourselves uh, to in figuring out whether, once we think perhaps we've got the right person, whether or not uh, we in fact do. There's no reason to suppose that somebody accused of these crimes is undeserving of the procedural protections that we uh, afford to people accused of all sorts of other horrible crimes, mobsters, child molesters, and uh, drug kingpins among them. I want to add my word of welcome to Anne-Marie and uh, my pleasure at being able to share the platform with her this morning. Chris Eisgruber and I, I, I sort of view this as a slight preview of coming attractions. I hope they're attractions. He and I are going to give a seminar next spring to graduate students. hope Anne-Marie will find some time to maybe give us a cameo appearance here and there on the subject of this morning's deliberations. And I thought, Ice Group, were you going to be sort of the contained, judicious, uh, <laughs> reflective part of this team? And let me be the wild man. But let me, uh, let me, just, re let me just reverse roles a bit this morning. Uh, I have a heavy heart as I read the article that uh, Chris made reference to in today's Times, and I think it's, all, it's worth all of your perusing. Uh, this is a classic Washington situation. It's sort of like, frankly, a, a totally uh, different area of behavior. Uh, Gary Hart's challenge that we uh, see, see, see if the news could find him in a compromising position. It seems to me this administration, by holding all the information uh, in its hands uh, with respect to 9-11 and what transpired uh, before it, has challenged the news media to go out and find bit by bit uh, the salacious uh, story to try to pin blame. And uh, there'll be plenty of blame to go around when the Joint, joint Committee, Joint Intelligence Committee, uh, finishes its deliberations. They're scheduled to go about a year. Uh, they are starting closed hearings uh, next week. And it's not at all clear that uh, they are going to dominate the field. We may well in time see a presidential commission looking into uh, the events of 9-11 and what we knew and uh, whether we should have known more. Uh, we have a precedent here in Pearl Harbor. There were a number of administrative uh, views, uh, inquiries into what transpired during the war. We have to all fighting a war uh, immediately obviously after uh, the event. Uh, the big congressional look-see, however, didn't occur until 1945. And maybe there is some wisdom in letting a little bit of the dust settle before you get into uh, a full uh, historical accounting of what took place. But in a situation like this, obviously that's impossible because if things were wrong, we've got to try to figure out uh, a way to fix them. Much discussion, of course, about uh, this phrase, connecting the dots. And what I wanted to do is just talk a little bit about 
how we got into this particular situation where it would, assume, it would seem that certain critical elements in the intelligence community weren't talking to one another. Let's go back to 1947 at the time that uh, the CIA uh, was created. It is clear that at that time, as Professor Phil Hyman at uh, Harvard Law School has, has uh, also noted in articles, the FBI had a domestic law enforcement mission, and that was its primary responsibility. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover wanted more. Uh, he had foreign intelligence collection responsibilities in Latin America during World War II, and he had, of course, counterintelligence responsibility in the United States, which stretched overseas, as Chris has noted in the case of the ex-party queer and arrival of German saboteurs on our shores. But primarily, the job of the FBI was domestic. By contrast, the new CIA, if it was able to avoid being strangled at its birth, and uh, the FBI were, were, were part of the lurking uh, and menacing group in Washington, D.C., along with the State Department, and the military intelligence uh, elements that wanted to uh, very much restrict what the new CIA would do had as its primary responsibility the collection, centralization, and analysis of intelligence information on political, economic, scientific, and technological, and even military happenings overseas. In fact, by direction of President Truman, who feared he had enough trouble on his hands, in his view, with J. Edgar Hoover. He did not want to create an American Gestapo. And as most of you know, in the National Security Act of 1947, which created CIA, there is a provision that prohibits CIA from exercising domestic law enforcement functions. Now, 55 years later, these separate and distinct operational spheres for FBI and CIA no longer apply. Since the mid-90s, the Bureau has opened legal attache offices overseas or expanded substantially already existing ones to gather intelligence on terrorism, to support potential prosecutions in the United States, and to do other uh, liaison kind of uh, exchanges of information with their uh, internal security counterparts in many nations. And CIA has been pulled into domestic law enforcement by Presidential Decision Directive 1935, uh, 35, not 1935, 35, <laughs> still classified but uh, drafted during the Clinton administration, which after the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991 created a new uh, set of targets for the intelligence community to pursue. pursue. And uh, along with the increasing U.S. criminal jurisdiction that related to terrorist acts overseas, trying to extend American jurisdiction to these crimes, and especially uh, with the passage of the USA Patriot Act after 9-11, it's clear that CIA, whether it chooses to acknowledge it or not, is involved in domestic law enforcement. Therefore, these two roles that seemed so distinct and separate uh, at the time of creation of CIA in 1947 have been hopelessly interwoven and confused, and uh, the unhappy results 
uh, of 9-11 show, in my judgment, some of the effects of this confusion. Despite uh, the creation of a counter-terrorist center 10 years ago and a counter-intelligence center, there has clearly been fa a failure on the part of these two agencies to sh and other agencies to share what is uh, in the baffle gab of Washington, D.C., called actionable intelligence, information, intelligence information that law enforcement or the military uh, could uh, react to and actually uh, take steps. This distrust, as I say, goes back 55 years. And uh, uh, there is a reference in the New York Times piece today to the fact that I actually, uh, a fact that I actually remember from 1970 on, during the period of my service in CIA, literally there was no relationship between CIA and FBI on an ongoing office-to-office, person-to-person basis. The communications took place by memorandum, they went through one designated party. I'll never forget the gentleman's name, S.J. Papich. That's the person to whom you directed the memoranda if you wanted to get information from the FBI and vice versa, James Angleton and CIA. Now, that's just nutty. And a part of that, uh, is this article attributes to Hoover's uh, disdain over uh, uh, a situation where the agency allegedly held out on him with respect to the name of a of a counterintelligence uh, case in the United States. Whatever the, whatever the, whatever the business was, uh, we didn't talk to uh, FBI nor FBI to us. One of the things that uh, the Joint Commission will have to deal with and any uh, uh, future Blue Ribbon Panel is that the FBI and CIA are structurally underprepared for this new uh, obsession with uh, terrorism. As is noted in this article and has been for some weeks now, the FBI has the investigative mindset of an, of an organization whose primary responsibility is to gather evidence for federal criminal prosecutions. That is, information which can be authenticated and legitimated in a court of law and has probative value not, as was noted a week or so ago, unsubstantiated hunches uh, that uh, apparently lay behind the famous Phoenix Memorandum about whether hostile Arabs might be training to fly airplanes uh, and hijack them and drive them as human missiles into American buildings. By contrast, intelligence operatives who aren't engaged or haven't been in the past engaged in uh, the criminal justice system work on hunches. It's this kind of information that is their lifeblood and what they have reported. Uh, the question is, uh, will they have access uh, to the individuals who have that in mind? CIA's drawback, it seems to me, is that in collecting foreign intelligence information on political and economic intentions of states, it is not used to prowling the back alleys of the Middle East in search of stateless Islamic terrorist groups, people, uh, groups that have no organization other than the commitment to one another and to a terrorist act. Whether these are loosely confederated under the banner of Al-Qaeda or, uh, or whatever. 
Now the CIA and FBI will be charged with the responsibility to fight terrorism directed at the United States in our home places, in our places of work, and there will of necessity be an enormous learning curve. This has to be combined with uh, an understanding of our constitutional system, which I think both Anne-Marie and Chris have referred to uh, eloquently. But uh, we obviously, and that's part of what our, our seminar will be dealing with, how to be effective in this uh, war on terrorism. And I was delighted to see that Anne-Marie emphasized the criminal justice aspect of that, because I certainly believe that's where the major battle is going to take place. And it's also refreshing to see that judges around the United States, as they're dealing with various elements of the government's reaction to 9-11, are being very forceful in rendering decisions about the limits on uh, detention, uh, nameless detention, uh, without uh, uh, specifying crimes and the rest. We've noted that the FBI is going to get a loan of 25 analysts from CIA to develop an intelligence terrorist analytical capability. Well, to some degree, that's a canard. The Bureau knows how to do analysis. Uh, the point is made that uh, uh, the really the rough, the rough and ready uh, 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 masculine culture of the FBI means that people who sit around desks and think and, 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 and bring information together are not as well respected as the street agents who actually go out and bust criminals. It's an issue that will have to be dealt with, but after all, the Bureau has been in the business of fighting white-collar crime for a good while. They know how to put together a case. When we were doing the Ames investigation some years ago, we found that their ability to do uh, analysis on a financial crime following a financial trail was far more developed than it was at CIA, and we could have used uh, their help. All right, let's grant them that. They're going to spend a little bit more time beefing up that uh, expertise. CIA, as I have often uh, have noted in, in writings, lacks deep foreign language resources, to put it mildly, and the cultural knowledge that goes with it, especially in the Middle East and other underdeveloped parts of the world, and that's something that will have to uh, uh, be beefed up. Most importantly, however, and I think this is what you're going to have to uh, spend a little time focusing on, each organization has to cope with a stifling, gelatinous, mature bureaucracy which has become too big, too self-serving, too unresponsive, undercompensated, and that's an important point, and poorly led for far too long. I say that in the face of what I believe is a superb job being done by George Tenet at CIA in lifting the morale of the place up from the floorboards where it was after the departure of his predecessor. But still, some extraordinarily hard decisions will have to be made. And as we're seeing in the critiques of the Bureau, and they could be uh, uh, leveled at the CIA in just the same fashion, the result have, has been the creation of a cautious, risk-averse, self-protective uh, uh, approach to many of these matters. Well, let me finish up by trying to uh, uh, pose a few questions. What's to be done? Clearly, it seems to me that the nation needs and requires a full investigation of 9-11 and what uh, we knew 
uh, uh, before it. It has to take place without partisan rancor, a hard thing to find in Washington these days, and in my view, a minimum of scapegoating. Secondly, we need to reconfigure the responsibilities of the FBI and CIA. It is no good. It, it does no good to have them stumbling all over each other in the domestic and the foreign spheres. And I'm afraid this kind of uh, uh, line drawing will have to affect the Immigration and Naturalization Service, the FFA, FAA, and Customs also, so that they'll be able to work with maximum efficiency against future terrorist threats. And finally, this has to be done within the context of our constitutional democracy and with a minimum of duplication of effort and turf rivalry. Now, that's a tall order, and it will require to some degree that Washington, D.C. suspend its normal approach to the ordering of things. Washington will have to think of the best way to get the job done as opposed to the will of entrenched interests. And make no mistake about that, that will be the FBI old boys and the CIA uh, 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 net will be equally intent on making sure that uh, uh, much of what they uh, consider to be important is preserved. In many ways, we're writing the prescription for an effective Department of Homeland Defense. I think we're talking about a good 10 years to get this done. I think uh, that, that's the problem that uh, I foresee. There'll be a lot of, of uh, good ideas, I'm sure, that come out of these deliberations, but they will not be capable of being achieved overnight. I think we've learned three things from 9-11, wholly apart from the intelligence uh, uh, question. I think we've learned that unilateralism will not work. And I can tell you that lots of the money that's been appropriated to the intelligence community since 9-11 uh, is going directly to liaison services all over the world to help them help us in tracking down terrorist entities. Secondly, and I feel so, this so strongly with respect to uh, our students here at Princeton and in the Woodrow Wilson School in particular, the U.S. government can no longer be regarded as, as part of the problem. It is part of the solution, and it is critical where it is under-accomplishing its mission. We do everything we can to strengthen it, and by that I mean a certain percentage of our students have to be willing uh, themselves to devote their careers to public service. And finally, government service it has been dubbed by one of the most uh, uh, informed experts in this field uh, at Brookings. Uh, taking a look at the statistics, where within the next five years, 40% of the federal service will be eligible to retire. The quiet crisis of uh, U.S. government service and the capability of the people who serve in it is something that we all have a responsibility to note and do what we can to fix. Thank you for your attention. We do have ample time for discussion and question and answer. Who would like to lead off? Yes. I have a dual question. Uh, one of the reasons Establish credibility with a population 
that the system is fair. When you're dealing with terrorists, many of them do not even recognize one of the values of our culture. And second thing, the judicial system where they make demands for Islamic courts. And they're playing to a larger world stage. How do we deal with that problem? And if we do ignore that and proceed with our own judicial system, how do we deal with the problems of compromising intelligence assets? Let me um, repeat, summarize the question because we're recording um, the entire proceedings. Uh, the first part of it was, was our judicial system in part is uh, trials are intended as a way to show that things are fair and what role does this play when uh, terrorists uh, actually have no concern about that but are in fact are playing to a wider world audience and secondly how can we proceed against terrorists without compromising um, um, intelligence sources so let me take a, a first crack uh, I think there are two answers to the to the first question you're right, of course. Uh, the, the, we're, we're not doing this for the defendant uh, in the sense that the, nothing we do is going to persuade the defendant that our system is fair, and nothing that we do is going to persuade uh, the supporters of the defendant in various countries uh, that what we do is fair. But there are other audiences, and primarily, of course, it's uh, our own people and our own people, including uh, Muslim Americans of various kinds, that regardless of the identity of the defendant, uh, regardless of the ethnicity, regardless of the ideology, we stick to our principles uh, and we accord the same kind of trial uh, to an accused Islamic terrorist that we do any other uh, criminal. That seems to me very important as a domestic political matter, but also as a global political matter, not necessarily for uh, the in many individuals uh, in countries around the world uh, who have their minds made up, but for our allies uh, who are also watching uh, whether we stick to our principles, and for the more moderate members uh, of many countries who have no voice. Doesn't mean they don't they don't. Uh, uh, have their views, but but they they uh, have their voice. That's why I would say it's uh, particularly important, even with somebody like Musawi, who is using our judicial system to stand up and spew his hatred uh, of the United States. He's not alone. Chris gave you plenty of examples of pretty horrific uh, people who hate the United States government and all it stands for, and we don't have to look any further than Oklahoma City to find that. We still uh, stick to uh, the way our procedural system. But beyond that, I think there's still a role uh, for enhancing the legitimacy of what we do in an international tribunal. Uh, in part, if you had an international tribunal with uh, Muslim judges, that's not the same as Islamic judges, and I understand that. That means judges from Muslim countries who may well be secularly trained as opposed to being true Islamic jurists. Nevertheless, uh, we have a tribunal, the International Tribunal in The Hague for the former uh, Yugoslavia, has Muslim judges on it, judges who are also Muslims. I still think for much of the world, uh, at least for some trials, that would have greater legitimacy. It's also possible to have an amicus brief 
uh, of Islamic jurists stating that they think that the defendant is guilty under Islamic law. We, you see this in private commercial arbitrations where, uh, where involving an Islamic country, you have a brief that is filed by Islamic scholars. So I think there are things we could do. The intelligence issues, I think, are hugely important. They are, this is an issue, though, that we're already facing right now with the uh, International Tribunal for the Former Yugoslavia. A lot of how we're finding some of these defendants involve intelligence assets. It's a big problem, but it's not an insuperable one. Can I speak a little to that last latter point? Uh, you're right on that, Anne-Marie. There was the precedent in the Libyan trial of, of uh, declassifying. Is this coming through? Okay. Uh, of actually declassifying intelligence reports uh, and offering them uh, as evidence in the uh, proceeding. But, again, this is not something that our uh, prosecutorial uh, forces are unfamiliar with. When you're trying gangland violence, for example, you may have an informant, a mafia informant, and you have to find a way to get that testimony in if it's critical. There is a law called the Classified Information Procedures Act that was passed 20 years ago that has had a big impact of, on limiting the amount of gray mail, the ability of a criminal defendant to uh, uh, leverage uh, the classified information against the government in an effort to get off their client. You can introduce classified uh, documents in uh, chamber uh, before the judge he can make a determination as to whether or not this is critical to the prosecution of the defendant, and you can, and you can prevent the opening up of a whole wide range of, of documents and information that would be uh, would reveal sources and, and go beyond uh, what the government is prepared to risk in bringing a criminal defendant to justice. Can I, can I speak uh, briefly to, to both of these two points? And just to underscore first something that Anne-Marie said on the uh, first of the two points, I confessed to watching the uh, Fox News Channel uh, last night. <laughs> a dangerous thing to do. Uh, but they, one of the, the quick reports they had was the FBI is currently uh, recruiting um, Arab Americans uh, here in the state of uh, New Jersey. Uh, there are about 300 FBI agents uh, in New Jersey. Apparently, uh, none of them speaks Arabic. And the uh, FBI was in Patterson, where there's a substantial uh, uh, Islamic community uh, seeking new agents uh, last night. And TV reporters interviewed some of the people who were there. Remember, they're there for uh, an FBI recruiting program. So these are not the most hostile members of the community. One would imagine. One 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 fellow says, says uh, "Look, you know, immediately after 9/11, the the FBI came to my uh, uh, home and uh, searched it. They searched it without a warrant. Uh, they violated the Constitution. They were quite polite when they uh, they left. He says, and I understand why they why they did this, but it was it was wrong. And I, I think this is an example of the. The, uh, the sort of cost that is paid uh, um, with respect to one important audience that's interested in the integrity of these uh, trials, which are uh, uh, Americans uh, here in these minority communities whom, whom we really um, uh, need to fully uh, include. On, on the second point about uh, intelligence protection, I think you've put your finger on what is the most uh, difficult problem that's faced in the course of these um, uh, trials. Um, uh, it, it's difficult because uh, the cost of uh, disclosing our intelligence information about the sources of uh, intelligence uh, is potentially extreme. That is, uh, the agents who provided it could be killed or, uh, at best, uh, rendered useless uh, to us. 
uh, it's difficult because on the other side, not allowing somebody to question that information that is to find out what it's really all about uh, and uh, defend themselves against the accusations could be uh, fatal to uh, a defense if they're being inappropriately accused by somebody who uh, is an agent of ours but has a vendetta uh, against them. Uh, I think this needs to be worked out carefully on a case-by-case uh, basis. That is, it's, it's not an answer to it to say, well, all right, this is a problem potentially in some of these cases. Therefore, every terrorist can be tried in front of a military tribunal pursuant to whatever rules the Secretary of Defense writes, which is the Bush administration's initial response to this. On the other hand, I think it's genuinely hard. The, the SEPA, the uh, Classified in, uh, Information Act that was mentioned by um, uh, Fred, uh, uh, does allow for some in-camera inspection of some of these, uh, some of this information, but it's not going to solve all of these problems because at some point, if the government wants to continue to hide its sources, it's not able to use the information under uh, SEPA. So I think there are, as I said at the very end of my uh, talk, uh, there are some adjustments that will need to be made, and I think this is an area uh, where where that's the case. But uh, but I don't think the fact that this is a serious problem should then allow it, lead us to open the floodgates and and make every change that seems to grease the skids for the grease the tracks to. Conviction. Yes. Where in your discussion uh, do you place the fact that uh, our government uh, likes to export? I mean, we, we propagate our values all over the world, uh, and it seems to me that in case like that, we have to respect them. Otherwise, we are known to be hypocritical. We do not, if we export freedom, if we export human rights, and then the world looks at us, and we are not uh, exercising our that. Is that a question to your daughter? <laughs> Miss, Miss Daughter, would you like to take that up? <laughs> when my father and I originally wanted to open a law firm, we thought about calling it Slaughter and Daughter. Uh, but this is <laughs> I, I think that's actually more a response than a question and a very right one. Uh, let me fill in the, the context. Uh, uh, my mother's Belgian originally and has uh, been spending a lot of time in, in Brussels and most recently uh, said to me once uh, in a phone conversation that she had to come home, and she had to come home soon because the degree of anti-Americanism was so intense that here she is, a native Belgian, but of course an American and an American who has spent her life here, raised her family here, pursued her career here. Uh, that's a very, very serious problem. Uh, and it is not a problem that we can address solely by talking about unilateralism and multilateralism. We have the, the degree and the intensity of anti-Americanism in Europe, uh, among my students who come to the Harvard Law School to spend a year getting a Harvard Law School degree, so it's not from all over the world, but often from our traditional allies. These are hardly people who uh, reject what we stand for. They come, what they say is, we don't live up to what we stand for, and they are deeply disappointed in us. It is in many ways the anger of the people, of, of people who expected something better. It's very important in addressing this problem that we find a way to, stand, to pursue our own interests, which are not always the interests uh, of other countries, but simultaneously to 
do a better job of living up uh, to our own principles. I'll say this. I'll say when I'm in Europe, I bash Europeans for what I think of as a very fashionable anti-Americanism where, you know, it's part of being hip to say that there's nothing good that the United States can do. I have no patience with that either. But some of what they say, they have a point, and it is a very important part of the equation. Yes. The question is uh, essentially how does how does one arrive at an agreed upon definition of terrorism um, that applies um, everywhere? Uh, otherwise, it becomes uh, each each state defining um, what it means uh, and could be very very different. Uh. So first of all, I have to say that I just gave uh, the case of uh, Iraq uh, setting oil fires in Kuwait uh, and whether or not this was an act of environmental warfare, an illegal act of environmental warfare for my Harvard Law School exam. Uh, so ah. your, your, your question is very timely. Um, and, and I do think, actually, when I said there are a class of global crimes, such as money laundering, uh, trafficking in women and children, arms trafficking, that, may, that is very likely to include environmental environmental crimes. But your second question is a much harder one. 
I've actually advocated in print that we move away from the whole concept of terrorism or from the label terrorism, that we focus not on the means but on the targets. The means sowing terror uh, is immediately then, many say, justified by the ends. It's a question of why you're sowing terror. Are you sowing terror uh, in the liberation of your people? Uh, and that, of course, then involves lots of normative judgments. I would say instead, we have a well-recognized norm, not norm, legal uh, doctrine of international humanitarian law and increasingly international criminal law and the law of war. It is illegal to deliberately target or kill civilians. Now, there are obviously questions about who are civilians, but the military, militaries around the world have been addressing that question for decades. It is a much easier way to address this problem. And I would say that's true if it's a government. What the Russian government is doing in Chechnya is every bit as illegal uh, as what happened on September 11th. There are, that is already a norm of international law. It covers 99% of the cases that we all now think of as terrorism. It gets away from one person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter. It doesn't address all the horrible problems you could identify, but I would argue it must be the equivalent norm for a 21st century international legal order to Article 2.4 of the UN Charter adopted in 1945 that said all states must refrain from the use of force in their international relations. We should have a norm that says it is illegal to deliberately, and note I say deliberately, target or kill civilians. Yes. Until uh, last summer, I spent four years as assistant secretary of the Army, uh, among other things, responsible for the Army's role in uh, domestic security and observed, as Mr. Pitts uh, explained, how uh, structurally uh, incapable, or at least uh, the numbers of impediments in various uh, sources of information working together. Now that I'm, I've returned to the private sector, I'm equally impressed with the capabilities of some of the best managed global corporations with whom I'm working as a consultant in actually collecting, uh, analyzing, disseminating certain classes of both political and economic intelligence and other forms of information. And I wonder whether, uh, as part of this bigger picture, the traditional boundaries between what is public and what is private, what is governmental and what is corporate, are themselves uh, outmoded and the degree to which in any of this uh, landscape that you all are describing, studying paradigms, uh, whether there's uh, once again some different way of thinking about information and intelligence that does cross the boundaries even here at uh, Princeton between uh, this school and uh, other parts. I, that's uh, music to my ears because I quite <laughs> agree with you. I think. Obviously, you live on past experience, and the Cold War was a different world. We were trying to obtain information uh, about an enormous uh, governmental structure that was determined to keep us from learning anything. And our success was uh, mixed, uh, and thankfully very helped by technological methods of collection. But I don't think that situation obtains uh, any longer, and I quite agree with you. The effort should be on uh, opening up rather than closing down. I think CIA on the analytical side, the intelligence community on the analytical side, has recognized that. The follow-on to the Board of National Estimate that used to do the crystal balling 
As you know, has put out, the National Intelligence Council has put out some interesting reports in the last year or so talking about such global phenomena as limitation of resources in the Middle East, water, uh, uh, the pressure of overpopulation. These are matters that are intelligence in the sense that they're gathered from all sources and deal with a discrete problem that might not uh, 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 is of, uh, is of real relevance to certain of our governmental leaders, but also has a broader audience. Thanks to Dick's, Dick Ullman, I've become involved uh, with uh, something called the Wisconsin Project uh, in Washington, D.C., which is literally an overt intelligence gathering mechanism, making use of the Internet and other sources of information to track the way in which Iraq is being supplied with uh, 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 weapons-making materials. It's all on the up and up. And we, we get it uh, uh, right from the airwaves. And uh, uh, with a very skilled person at the head able to testify before the Congress and put it out in um, a readable form, uh, uh, disks and others, uh, it can be uh, made available to border guards in Uzbekistan where they can perhaps perceive a a, uh, a potential smuggling of, of uh, fissionable material from, a, from one of the states of the former Soviet Union. So I quite agree with you. I think there's an awful lot that can be uh, gained uh, in the overt uh, uh, sources of information and shared widely. I just wanted to add one footnote. that In my remarks earlier this morning, I said I hope one of the things we will do in the next five years uh, is to focus on how we tra train private actors for public service in their capacity as private actors. I look forward to continuing to get that conversation. Yes. Uh, I would like to pose two questions. One, something that derives from uh, uh, one of Fedez's uh, closing remarks. That's international agencies, uh, foreign agencies, intelligence services, and cooperation among them. Uh, there's been a good deal of press attention to the German and the Italian uh, intelligence services having gotten pieces, shards of information before as well, a good deal after. Uh, and the Arab intelligence services presumably are far better poised to penetrate al-Qaeda than the CIA could ever be. Uh, I wonder if you could comment uh, on this issue, uh, Fred, about um, the nature of, since we hold back our sources even from our foreign intelligence partners as they must from us, uh, how uh, are we able to um, to get with confidence a sense of information? The uh, Egyptian ambassador in Tokyo told me last week that we had had information, we shared it with the Americans, there was going to be a big attack the week of September 9th, but we had it that would be in Japan. So the American bases were all on high alert in Japan, and they were disappointed. Um, so, you know, the question of how you evaluate these pieces that you'll get from, from other sides. The other question deals with the self-defense justification for waging international war rather than the Chapter 7 of the UN Charter collective uh, reactor. I wonder if you could comment on how this now consecration of self-defense, uh, which we then see used by Sharon in dealing with the uh, Israeli-Palestinian problems and by India in dealing with Pakistan, and also going further down the slippery slope suggestion of a right of preemptive warfare if you suspect you may be attacked, uh, how that plays out in international law. I'll tackle the first part. Uh, uh, you're, you're, you're dead on, and of course, uh, part of this drib, 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 water torture of what we knew 
prior to September 11 and what we did or didn't do about it has included a reference to the information that you received or was received in Tokyo from the Egyptian ambassador, not only our Egyptian friends, but others, uh, governments in the Middle East, including uh, uh, Mossad, including the Israelis, did talk about an event last summer. And the question has always been, since the information was nonspecific, uh, uh, it was hard to, to react to. And I think that's going to be a problem with terrorist information that most people who have worked in this field uh, recognize. It's the tactical uh, 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 detail that we are uh, in desperate search for and in many instances will be lucky to obtain. On the more important question of liaison relationships, it's absolutely key. It's just a no-brainer. These are, these are uh, the and, and, and these are the things that the U.S. government quite properly, intelligence community quite properly, uh, hold very tightly for the simple reason that they won't get that cooperation if they play fast and loose with the information. But my hope is, which relates to the question of, of your mother, Anne-Marie, uh, if we have, if, if the attitude towards the United States around the world is that we are not living up to our international uh, obligations, not pulling our weight, uh, 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 going the unilateral route too often, then this kind of cooperation on a, on a nitty-gritty level from liaison services is bound to be affected. I mean, this, in the face of an, an awful lot of financial resources, we will be able to make available to those services to do some of the high technical, the high tech uh, uh, wizardry that, that we've gotten used to. That wasn't enough time to let me uh, figure out what I want to say. <laughs> uh, you've put your finger on one of the most difficult and most important questions, I think, facing international lawyers and policymakers uh, tr trying to figure out what the normative framework has to be going forward. The I think the United States was justified, uh, certainly in Afghanistan under Article 51, acting in self-defense uh, following an armed attack. I, I don't have any uh, difficulty with that. However, uh, it obviously has the precedential value that you point to in the Middle East, just as, incidentally, any infringements uh, we make domestically on civil liberties and uh, civil rights are being borrowed by governments around the world to justify what they're doing uh, to their own citizens. Uh, so it's a, it's a weapon you use very, very carefully. I actually think uh, we are going to have to redefine what self-defense means, and it must include the possibility of anticipatory self-defense. That is totally frightening in terms of what it could be used for, but it may also be totally necessary. I mean, if we really have evidence that someone is developing biological agents or nuclear uh, uh, weapons that they are going to use, it is suicidal, literally, to wait until the armed attack to respond. And yet how you're going to do that and what kind of evidence uh, you need and under what circumstances you're going to legitimate that is going to be the agenda uh, for the next 10 years. Many international lawyers would prefer to ignore it. They'd prefer to say we want to make it illegal and, of course, that rule will be broken. That's one way to do it, as we do it domestically constitutionally. We know that some constitutional norms will be violated in time of war, but we don't want to legitimate them. That's the Korematsu case. 
I would say we can't afford to do that because the lawyers in Washington are developing this doctrine, and they are going to promulgate it. They're developing it now. We are far better advised to engage that debate uh, and to, to think about it in the context of, yes, we need new rules and what should they be, rather than to simply try to hold on to the old rules. But I wish I had a more substantive answer, and I don't. Yes. Um, the short version of my question is how do we deal with both the advantages and disadvantages of our federal system of government um, in developing our own criminal justice and law enforcement systems in this regard? Um, I, I'm going to add one other statement just to the case that, that's an inscrutable sort of question, and that is um, the, the area of international or partly networks of national law enforcement systems I'm most familiar with is in the securities and banking regulatory area. And I think most most uh, of both our allies and maybe even our foes would agree that um, in securities regulation in particular, uh, it is a U.S. comparative advantage. Whereas they all perceive that in uh, internal security, uh, we're at a profound disadvantage with respect to themselves. And most of us would also uh, acknowledge that. What most foreigners don't understand is that one of the reasons it's largely true in the securities area, despite our arrogance and reminding them frequently uh, of, <laughs> of that fact, um, it is, is in fact that we have a, a federalized system of securities regulation. I mean, that's one of the strengths. We've got this overlapping jurisdictions that, you know, in some sense, kind of compete with each other uh, to bring the best cases and to be the most vigilant. And yet everything I know as a, as a, as a novice, as, a, as a, uh, an amateur with respect to criminal law, other kinds of criminal law enforcement, suggests that no matter what power should you give the FBI, the competition between local and state law enforcement and the FBI is just, you know, it's, you know, a, a continuing and potential disaster. So what do you do about that? Well, uh, let me just take a first crack, because I know uh, Anne-Marie and Chris have uh, views on it from the criminal justice side. The Bureau is going to have its hands full if Mueller's, uh, uh, FBI Director Mueller's uh, reorganization uh, actually goes into effect in the way he has stated it. He also called for additional personnel. But perforce, they're going to leave a lot of uh, law enforcement activities that they used to do to the states. And that seems to me a recognition of, a, of, of, a, of a, an evolution that's already taken place where the uh, feds come in uh, 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 after an event occurs and really uh, are there to supplement the activity of the states. But as this relates to foreign intelligence collection, just let me try to remove one canard that's been tossed around in the papers um, uh, frequently in the last several weeks, and that is the notion that the United States, the Bureau, doesn't have the sort of domestic security kind of function that, for example, MI5 in Britain or, uh, uh, more importantly, the, uh, uh, the DST in France uh, possess. That's a lot of malarkey, and we may not like to go back to the period in which we did uh, permit the Bureau to act as a um, uh, uh, domestic intelligence gathering entity. Uh, such uh, uh, events as COINTELPRO come to mind, but also uh, the way in which in the late 40s and 50s we penetrated the Communist Party of the United States in an effort just to uh, do exactly that, find out who, uh, who the 
uh, uh, individuals were who had as a, as a goal the overthrow of the United States government. So th this is something that the Bureau uh, uh, can learn and become involved in, but I don't think that will necessarily uncomplicate uh, the point that you just made. There will be other actors, and they'll have to have a relationship uh, with them, and whether they will have a command relationship, which I imagine they will, if it relates to national security, that will create uh, uh, frictions as well. It, it, let me add some thoughts on the uh, uh, kind of constitutional aspects of federalism that play into this uh, question, and, and none of these will be in the way of a solution to the problem you describe. It's extremely, extremely important, ex extremely uh, uh, intractable. Uh, but, but here are at least three things to keep an eye on with regard to it. Uh, the first is that we we have this habit in the United States of talking about uh, federalism in terms of states versus uh, nation, but in fact we've got three layers of uh, government uh, here: uh, national, state, and uh, local. And this is very prominent in the area of uh, policing, but prominent elsewhere as well in regard to uh, things like taxation, where our municipalities have uh, considerably more autonomy than, for example, their Canadian counterparts or many of their European. Uh, counterpart. So this adds to the complexity and will add to the, to the, the difficulty of solving problems related to, uh, for example, adequate funding of investigations, worrying about the character of the personnel who are uh, in, involved, or setting up networks. Even if we could decide what the optimal kind of coordination uh, was, these are a tremendous number of units to even try to coordinate. So that's just hand-wringing about how hard the uh, question is. Here are, here are here now are, are references to two other areas in which this may have uh, special significance. One is an, an, an additional and unnecessary part of the problem. Right now, the, uh, the Supreme Court of the United States is most controversial to, to people who watch the court uh, professionally in jurisprudence, but perhaps hidden to other people who are professionally interested in uh, uh, policy. Uh, the most controversial part of their agenda in this way has to do with federalism. Uh, and, and one of the pieces of this uh, puzzle are a set of very obscure cases in which the Supreme Court has said that it's unconstitutional to conscript uh, state or local officials uh, in the service of uh, federal law, so that even requiring, for example, sheriffs to spend a few minutes doing a background check on somebody who's uh, purchasing a gun, to require them to do that as a matter of federal law is held to be unconstitutional, even if it's not a major financial burden, even if it uh, is only part of an inter interim uh, uh, program. Now, I, I must say, this strikes me as, as uh, uh, pointless from the standpoint of, of states' rights. It's hard to understand why this is a problem worthy of Supreme Court uh, attention. I think it's unjustified as a matter of standard methods of constitutional interpretation. And it really threatens to, to stand in the way of working out practical solutions to this problem. That is, hard as this thing is, the last thing we need uh, is this peculiar Supreme Court doctrine uh, creating uh, wooden constraints on what it is that uh, creative uh, policy thinkers can do in response to this. So one thing I hope at some point is that this forces the Supreme Court to reconsider that doctrine and pull back from it. It is really a, a peculiar doctrine. The, the, third, the third observation in regard to this is that one of the areas in which this has already been percolating through the system in an area especially worth watching is the intersection between law enforcement and immigration control. So the uh, federal government, as you will have noticed from past uh, news stories, has uh, encouraged uh, state law enforcement officials to become uh, more involved in the sorts of things that the Immigration and Naturalization Service has 
previously been doing, uh, local police chiefs have uh, resisted, in part because they don't want to alienate immigrant communities whom they rely on for other kinds of uh, law enforcement uh, activities and with whom they've been trying to build uh, relationships. The general connection here between uh, the criminal justice model that uh, Anne-Marie uh, talked about and the immigration model in the United States is very close and, and uh, very problematic, not just here, but also with regard, for example, to the new measures uh, related to um, uh, searches and intelligence gathering by the um, uh, FBI that Fred has uh, discussed and that have been in the news uh, recently. Uh, w- one of the reasons to worry about all this uh, intelligence uh, collection in the absence of uh, um, uh, uh, an actual criminal investigation is that perfectly lawfully all this information can be put to uh, uses against suspicious persons by finding immigration violations and uh, using those to uh, deport them with, with uh, uh, minimal kinds of uh, processes. And so the, the connection here between our thinking about immigration and our thinking about administration of the criminal justice system is going to be very close and is going to have to be very creative. Thank you like to talk to you about my book. (laughs) (laughs) Let me thank um, all of you uh, for coming uh, to this um, uh, Sunday morning uh, panel and particularly uh, our three panelists for quite a stimulating discussion.